Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Dr. Christy Fassler, N.D., co-founder of the North Coast Family Health Integrative Medicine Clinic, a naturopathic practice in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. In this podcast, Dr. Fassler and I discuss the training naturopathic doctors take, the philosophy behind naturopathy, and how naturopathic doctors work with patients to identify underlying dysfunction within the body and mind and correct it to promote healing from the inside out. We also discuss how Dr. Fassler worked with her husband, other naturopaths, and the community to get the state of New Hampshire to recognize and license naturopathic doctors in the mid-1990s, and as a result, she and her husband hold license numbers two and three in the state. This podcast was eye-opening for me because prior to talking with Dr. Fassler, I had never spoken with a naturopathic doctor. I learned a lot about the field and found many parallels between the naturopathic approach and the current movement in mainstream medicine towards a focus on wellness and patient-centeredness, beliefs that naturopaths hold central to their practice. I hope you enjoy the interview, and don't forget to leave us feedback on the blog or wherever you may be downloading the interview from. You can also find us on Twitter at HealthLF. That's at H-E-A-L-T-H-L-F. Welcome to The Forge, Christy. Thank you. You did your undergraduate work at the University of Oregon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why did you go to Oregon, and and what did you study there? I went to Oregon because I was living on the West Coast. I enjoyed Eugene, and I studied Spanish. I had my undergraduate degree in Spanish. I wanted to travel. I had no idea I'd ever be in medicine. Okay. According to an article that you provided me from uh, Seacoast Online, you actually became interested in naturopathic medicine when you had a bad case of eczema. Correct. So how did that lead you to naturopathy? The type of eczema I had was full body. It was like having poison ivy all over your body and scratching and bleeding in the middle of the night. I mean, it was really bad Sounds eczema. Awful. <laughs> it was awful. I was 27. I had done some traveling at that time. And I happened to be on the birth control pill. And I also was working in an Italian restaurant. I knew I wanted to do something in the service profession. I thought I might want to teach. And a friend gave me Adele Davis's book, How to Eat Right, or whatever her book was, way back in the 80s, early 80s. And there was a a couple pages on eczema and how eczema could potentially be a B6 vitamin deficiency and essential fatty acid deficiency. And I learned that the birth control pill competes with vitamin B6. Estrogens do that. So I went off the birth control pill, and I started supplementing with B vitamins, and I started changing the fats in my diet. And within a week, my eczema was gone, after a year of having that significant of wow. eczema. Okay. Yeah. So you, you, you kind of self-treated. I self-treated you, because I, I had already been through the medical route. They had no idea. They said, oh, it's not related to your diet. Here's some cortisone cream. We don't know what causes it. And as soon as you stopped using the cortisone cream, it would come back? Correct. And so, so it really was. It was a, a diet-related issue, and so you made these changes kind of on your own. Correct. So how did that lead you then to Natural your interest in medicine. Yeah. Well, that obviously led me to nutrition. Okay. There's a huge under, under-discovered field of nutrition. This is, we're talking back in the 80s. And so I would go to various doctors' uh, education forums, and they, the, the typical outlook on nutrition was it doesn't matter what you eat. Even if you have bad acne, it doesn't matter how much chocolate or how much crap you eat. (laughs) You know, it's not a detoxification mechanism to have acne. And after my experience, I just couldn't quite buy that. My mother and father lived in Seattle at the time, and she heard an interview with Dr. Bestier. Dr. Bestier was a longtime naturopathic doctor from the early 1900s. He delivered babies in hospitals back during World War II. He was just very well acknowledged and loved throughout the Seattle region as the doctor you could go to and who would make house calls and really take care of you. And one of his students, Dr. Joe Pizzorno, started and founded the Bastier College of Naturopathic Medicine back in 1978, I believe. Okay. Yes. 
So he, uh, after her, my mother heard me heard that interview, she shared, "You might be interested in naturopathic medicine." Okay. And it's like, yep. <laughs> so so you checked into it. And you I checked into it. And, and then and, and applied and and obviously. I had to complete two years of pre medical work first. Okay. Go back to school and do my pre meds. Yeah. Okay. So so what is the kind of background required then for to get into? It's uh, the same as any uh, medical profession. It's so, your undergraduate pre-med Okay, degree. so you're going to be doing biology, biology chemistry, organic chemistry, organic chemistry, organic chemistry. Or, or, yeah. or physics, calculus. Yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh -huh. So you went to, you actually, you went to Bastyr University and, and uh, graduated in 1988 with a naturopathic doctor degree, Correct. or MD. Why, why Bastyr? I guess because it was in the area? or uh, There were two there? colleges that were accredited at the time. Okay. National College of Naturopathic Medicine was in Portland, Oregon, and okay. Bastyr was in Seattle. Okay. Bastyr appealed to me for a couple of reasons. At that time, my parents lived there, and we had been separated for a long time. I thought it would be nice, like you're currently yeah. experiencing, to yeah. have a relationship in close proximity. And also, I liked the curriculum and what they offered at Bastyr better than at Okay. The NCNM at the time. NCNM is a great college. I, they've done a fabulous job too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you can you describe the training mm -hmm. that a that that is a naturopathic doctor goes through when sure. you're when you're in in school? The first two years are virtually identical, as far as I know, to an MD. Okay. We have dissection at lab. We have anatomy, physiology, biochemistry. We had some, where, where we deviated was a little bit with the naturopathic history, where we would talk about things like the Fletchner Report and how mm -hmm. the divisiveness in medicine occurred 100 plus years ago. There was more emphasis on prevention and biochemical nutrition. Yeah. Okay. So that's the first two years, and then the second two years? The second two years were more the clinical. Okay. So third and fourth year, we had clinic shifts at the rotation uh, rotation shifts at the best year clinic okay. that were supervised by phys naturopathic physicians and then we also had more topics like cardiology and gastroenterology you know what a typical medical doctor would have sure. infectious disease that kind of thing sure. back then it I'm sure it's very different now than it was back then okay okay <laughs> because medicine's evolved sure absolutely yeah, yeah. okay that's why I'd love for Dr. Uh, sure. Aguiar to come in. Well, we could. Sure. What would you say is the f philosophical underpinning of naturopathic medicine, and, and can you compare that to uh, uh, standard MD allopath allopathic medicine? Mm -hmm. right? This this is going to be my experience. Uh, what I was trained is there is as you you're aware, I think through what you're teaching, there was a division in medicine in the late 1800s. Uh, but prior to that, there were naturopathic physicians, there were homeopaths, there were allopaths. Uh, the naturopathic and homeopathic approach, as I understand it, is more uh, based on the body heals itself. Given the right opportunity and the right conditions, the body has the innate ability to heal itself. Okay. Allopathy, as I understand it, really went more towards medications treating symptoms. and. There's a place for that, but as I shared with my eczema story, it only goes so far. It didn't really treat the underlying cause of my eczema, it just suppressed the eczema, okay. the inflammation. And so I already knew that truth, and it was easy for me to say, yep, there's a lot of wisdom in naturopathic medicine. And that's not to say that allopathic medicine doesn't do a great job with critical care, trauma, putting people back together. It's that's hands down where it excels. But in the prevention and reversal of underlying chronic disease is where allopathic medicine doesn't do as well as we do. Okay. Yeah. So um. what our, our training is to give the body the underlying uh, appropriate conditions for health and then disease doesn't necessarily have to follow. And, and the, the chronic diseases we see today in our country are pretty much lifestyle diseases, heart Absolutely. disease, diabetes, it's, it's a system gone wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, now, and so allopathy is really focused on, okay, well, when your heart disease is bad enough and you need a stent or a bypass, we're there for you. Right. In the meantime, we have medications for your blood pressure, right. but we don't have really anything to help you get back to health. Okay. 
Does that make sense? That, that does make sense, mm -hmm. absolutely. What, what training is required for licensure as, an, as a naturopathic physician? In our state, we well, in all the states that license, it's four years of in-room naturopathic medicine. That may change to more online, as I think all university-level coursework mm -hmm. may. But currently, you have to be four years in the actual naturopathic medical school. There's okay. five that are accredited in North America, one's in Canada. When I was in school, there were only two. And then you have to pass your national board exams. When I, when I took them, all of the exams were at the end of the four years. Now, after your first two years, you can pass your basic sciences and then do your more clinically oriented Okay, uh, and that's called exams. the NPLEX. The National Phys uh, Naturopathic Physician Licensing Exam, yes, Okay. NPLEX. All right. Do uh, naturopathic doctors complete an internship the same way that, that MDs do? Some do, okay. most do not. Okay. I was um, selected as a resident to continue at Bastyr College, but some circumstances led me in a different direction. Okay. And I went uh, over to Montana and covered for a clinician who was taking a leave of absence. And so that's the way I went. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. So straight out of school and, and into, uh, into practice. Right into practice. Wow, yeah. okay. Yeah. And you, you were, so you were there, that was kind of the break between 88 when you graduated and 1990 when you actually came here to New Hampshire. I also, uh, I was just in uh, Montana for maybe four to six months. And okay. then I went back to the Seattle area and I worked in a medical practice as their naturopathic clinician, I tra t taught, tri uh, taught patients primarily nutrition. That's what I was there and hired to do. Okay. And then my husband, Dr. Hecht, and I moved to Portsmouth in 1989 and opened our doors essentially January okay. 1990. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you were already married to Dr. Hecht when you, when you all came here? We were engaged. Are engaged. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Great. So the two of you then founded North Coast Family Health together Correct. in 1989. What made you decide to come from the West Coast to the East Coast? And in particular, New Hampshire at the time was not licensing naturopathic doctors. Right. I would think that might actually kind of have discouraged you from coming, yet you did. So what was the decision? How did you guys decide, hey, let's do this? Well, we were looking for about six months of where we were going to go start a practice because in those days, and I would say this is still fairly true, although not as true, because uh, successful practices are looking for new graduates like ours. We just hired two. And um, in those days, you were on your own. You go out and you start your practice and you build it. And okay. so it was where do we want to have our family, where do we want to have our life? And our first choice was California. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the problem was California was a federal, uh, a felony, excuse me, a felony to practice without a license, and there was no licensing in California. Okay. So we were at risk of a jail term, which we didn't really yeah, endeavor to go for. Yeah, that's even more discouraging than it not having a licensing. Yeah. In New Hampshire, it was a misdemeanor and a $50 fine. Oh, but it was it was against the law. <laughs> it was against the law. So you okay? So you so you actually came here and said, oh, "We're going to open a practice anyway." Correct. We had a colleague who we had gone to school with. She started her practice in Concord. We visited her. We checked out Portsmouth. Said, "Let's come here." Wow. Okay. And then within a year or two, we were applying for licensure. Okay. What was so? What was practice like prior to you know New Hampshire officially licensing? Uh, naturopathic doctors. How how was it different then? What were you limited in doing? And uh, <laughs> lots of things. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's start with just opening a business, a naturopathic business, trying yeah. to get a loan from a bank. Sure. And not having a license right. was not an option. Ultimately, we had some family help, which is quite interesting. In that, when we moved here, we had buku banks wanting to lend us money because we were a successful practice and we were oh, obviously moved here to the new, this new location. Correct. But not back in 1990. Not 1990. Right. So right. 25 years can really change things. Sure. Yeah. But um, I would say our biggest effort was educating the public about what we did and okay. that if you wanted to take charge of your health, you could and we could help you. Okay. Mm -hmm. But were you able to order labs or, we were. or prescribe medications? We couldn't prescribe medications. We could okay. order labs. Okay. Uh, at that time, LabCorp was essentially adjacent to our office over on the hill. Okay. And then they were bought out 
that was PathLab actually, and then they were bought out by LabCorp later. Okay, so they didn't have a problem with with the fact that the state had not licensed you. None whatsoever. Okay, interesting. So. Mm-hmm. New Hampshire began licensing naturopathic doctors in 1996, and you were in, heavily involved in that process of kind of, of of getting that um, uh, approved by the state government. Correct. Uh, can you talk about the process you went through to get professional recognition for NDs? Sure. Um, that was 1991, August 1991. We were at a naturopathic um, national conference. It happened to be in Whistler. It was a joint conference between Canada and the U.S. Okay. And um, one of the patients of Dr. Herring in Concord, named Bob Timberlake, went to that. He started to become a champion of naturopathic medicine, having experienced really dramatically great results himself. And he was an entrepreneur, and he saw opportunity. Uh, there is. So a way to start getting some financing to, to go for licensure in New Hampshire, and he saw himself as the one who could spearhead that effort. And Dr. Hecht, myself, and Dr. Herring said, okay, let's go, let's do it. And um, we found a lobbyist. We found uh, Dr. Katie, or excuse me, Representative Katie Wheeler over in Durham was quite willing to sponsor us, as well as Burt Cohen here in Portsmouth as a, a senator. Okay. And we just went through the process. There was no computers in those days. There was no emails. It was you call people on the phone, all 200 plus representatives, and right. you write them letters, right. and you ask your patients to do the same. Okay. And they, you ask, invite them to come and testify, and they did. And we made a really good impression, I think, on most of all the legislature, uh, legislators. <clears throat> Our main opposition, of course, was the Medical Society. Okay. They especially objected to the word naturopathic physician, because physician means you're entitled to insurance. Okay. And um, so in our ep- effort to become licensed, we gave up that word to doctor. Okay. And ultimately that was, they, you know, they still uh, opposed us, but that was how we got licensed. We, we compromised. So for, for listeners who don't know, New Hampshire has one of the largest legislatures in the world. Absolutely. Apparently it's the third largest. So, so trying to reach out to all of the legislatures, it's like 400 people or something. It's, it is. It's, a, it's a crazy. It's a, <laughs> it's a lot of folks. It was grassroots effort. <laughs> yeah, that would take a lot of effort if you had to sell every one of them, especially with no email. or yeah, Exactly. Yeah. You get down and you type your letter or write, handwrite your letter. Yeah. and yeah. So it took you about five years of, of effort to do this. Uh, four. Four. Okay. Mm-hmm. So was there ever kind of a time where you're like, ah, this is just not going to work. We should. I know. never felt that way. No. Okay. Because the truth of what we do is self-evident, and the opposition you can count on it. No matter what you do, you're going to have opposition, and anything that's worthwhile, you can count on opposition for it. Generally, you'll sure. you'll have ground grassroots support, but the truth of what we do is living in our patients. Okay. You know, we could see it. Yeah. They could see it. And legislators could see it. And where people weren't getting results in other venues and we're getting results here, it's like this is an obvious choice that people should have. And this is the live free or die state. <laughs> Absolutely, right? You would think you'd be able to get something like that through. Exactly. Uh, through here. How did, so what kind of professional structure was put in place to provide licensing and oversight of the of of naturopathic doctors in New Hampshire after after your effort went through. It's essentially required by the state to have an examining board. Okay. And we have a naturopathic board of examiners. I was on the board initially for 8 years. I was part of a group that had to write the rules for the board and that was very tedious. At that time, what actually happened is there was another group that came to try to uh, repeal our law. These were what we call, um, (laughs) sort of jokingly, the undies. (laughs) 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 This group had um, mail-order degrees. Okay. Um, But it was a big effort to try and take away the law after it had been signed by the governor. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the committees that we had to here and they were there as well saying we should be licensed as well and they had you know literally a mail order degree this is quite a different sure degree than what we had yeah um, we managed to we managed to stay stay in business and they didn't okay yeah okay <laughs> uh, so after licensure how did how did your practice change 
Um, that's a good question because it's now almost 20 plus years ago. It's hard to even remember. Uh -huh. I'm not sure that it changed that much except okay. that we were illegal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about the, the, the misdemeanor charges anymore. Correct. Okay. Correct. It's okay. like we're, we're, we're here and we're, you know, legitimate. Were you able to do procedures or, or, or prescribe medications or anything that, you know, you had been restricted prior to the licensing coming through? Well, I uh, was trained to do pap smears and to do physical exams just like anybody else. Sure. And I did them even before I was licensed. Okay, okay. <laughs> this is the whole, we're just going to take a risk on the misdemeanor and... and Correct. Okay. Because I'm trained to this. Do sure. this. I've passed my exams. The only thing this state doesn't have yet is licensing and we're going to... We're working okay. on it. Yeah, right. it's not like we're not working in good faith with you to try and do what we do. Right. Right. Okay. How many states currently license naturopathic doctors? Do you know off the top of your head? I think it's 11 uh, to 14. Okay. I've, I've lost track. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's still it's still a field that is kind of seeking uh, public recognition. It is. And I have to stay, say the effort in Massachusetts has been one of the longest going. They sought licensing since pretty much a year after we sought it. The problem in Massachusetts is there's Mass General, there's Harvard, there's all the medical schools, and there's a lot of political. Um, and they all oppose it. Of course. Is that is that? It made it to the governor's desk, and he didn't sign it the last round. Okay. So there's a lot of politics. Okay, sure. Yeah. The literature that I've I've read primarily frames naturopathic doctors as primary care providers. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Is that how you kind of see yourself? Are there specialist naturopathic doctors? Yes, there are. Okay. I think of myself as different than a primary care okay. clinician, um, particularly now. We have really come to specialize in chronic infections and chronic disease. Okay. I see primary care doctors as the place you go and you have your annual exams and maybe a few lab tests and you know, you're referred. In the model that I see today, I don't see us as that. Although in Oregon and Washington, where we've been around longer, perhaps that is the case. Oh, okay. Um, but here we've evolved to be essentially a tick-borne infection clinic, okay. as well as other chronic diseases and how they're all integrated together because one causes other symptoms, hormonal symptoms or digestive symptoms or headaches. I mean, it's, it's a systemic illness. And so the, the way we've gotten involved in this is my husband had uh, some tick-borne infections early in the 2000s. He was diagnosed with Babesia, mm -hmm. Lyme, and Bartonella. And he was seeing Dr. Richard Horowitz over in New York, who's a Lyme specialist and intern. And then he started noticing that patients were coming in with similar symptoms. And, <laughs> and then I did too. Okay. And um, unfortunately, many of these diseases are not able to be diagnosed by, Lyme, uh, by, by blood tests, right. including Lyme disease. The tests are 45% sensitive, except okay. a couple of labs that aren't generally recognized in the medical profession. Um, 45% sensitivity leaves 55% of patients without an appropriate proper diagnosis. And so we've, we've become more of a specialty clinic and that's why we've added to hire two other doctors. We've had a third since, since 2001. Okay, and that was one of the things I had noted about your practice in particular was you said, you said about 85% of your patients are coming to you for tick-borne illnesses, infections. Yes. Uh, some of them don't know they have infections. They come to us. I, I'll, I'll just give a couple examples. One woman said, I've been diagnosed with ALS. I've been given two to five years to live. Another young girl came in. She'd been to PT. She'd had numerous um, orthopedic evaluations, and she was on crutches because her feet hurt too much to walk. It was really evident right away that she had Bartonella. That's a common symptom of Bartonella is foot tenderness, and when you step on the floor, it's too painful. And she's 14 years old. Nobody saw it, and she and 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 so a lot of do, a lot of our patients say, "I've already been to 20." The, the record was like 62 to 64 doctors before oh they goodness. made it here to be diagnosed wow. appropriately and treated appropriately. Yeah. The woman who had quote ALS, um, her symptoms present like ALS. Interestingly, she was bitten by a tick about four months before the symptoms started. Her Lyme test was positive. 
when uh, she's still being treated, we're treating her very uh, slowly, but when we treat her, the symptoms do get worse as the infection dies off. It, it causes a lot of inflammation. Um, so we have to go slowly because it's, we don't want her to, you know, but I, I do believe that she will be curable. And I've seen a lot of patients who have been told they're, there's, we don't know what you have. You must, why don't you go home and be on an antidepressant? That's all we can <laughs> offer you because we just don't know what it is. Uh -huh. um, and, and we're able to help them significantly. And it, well. and it is chronic infection. The, the, I guess that this is not necessarily about naturopathic medicine, but there's two, there's a polarization about Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases. And is it acute, an acute illness or is it a chronic illness? We find that um, if you are just bitten by the tick and you have the bullseye, lucky you, it's obviously acute. But um, a lot of patients had the bullseye or maybe never had the bullseye, but they've been sick for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and they have the infection, and they're never diagnosed. So you can carry that infection for, a you're lifetime. saying, decades? Or a lifetime. A lifetime. Yeah. No kidding. I didn't know that. Okay. And, uh, and conven the conventional treatment is, this is down through uh, Infectious Disease Society of America, four to six weeks of doxycycline, you're done. You've been right. treated. You might still be sick, but you're done. <laughs> okay. Okay. And so patients get kind of discouraged because they've lost a quality of life. Many of them are disabled. And we are more in alignment with the protocol put out by the International Alignment Associated Disease Society, ILADS, which is this can be chronic and it may not just be one infection because ticks carry a lot more than just Lyme disease. They carry viruses, they carry protoplasmas, they carry bacteria, they carry phages, they carry all kinds of different infections. Yeah. And it's our responsibility to identify clinically which symptoms the patient has that match with which diseases, do as much blood work as we can to confirm it, and if it doesn't confirm it, to treat them anyway, and they get better. Yeah. The, uh, I'm reading, after you told me about the um, uh, Lyme disease and, and the fact that you were, your practice was was heavily involved in, in treating this this illness, mm -hmm. I looked on the CDC, and, and it seems like a lot of these have these kind of vague symptoms of, of fever, chills, body aches, but, but one of the things, as you're saying, is many of the, the, even the CDC says, you know, the tests are only 40, 60% accurate, and, and then what do you do? It's a clinical diagnosis. Yeah. And uh, I, I will just say, I, I realized the epidemic nature of this problem about five years ago when I saw in our office, at our previous office, out of 11 of us who were per serving there or, you know, staff, I was the only one who hadn't been infected. Oh, wow. And we're talking about women between 40 and 65 years of age who are really sick at some point or another with Lyme and Bartonella, sometimes Babesia. And, of course, my husband, I told you, already had it. So um, it really impressed upon me that <laughs> 10 out of 11, that's just in our office. We're not little kids playing on the fields or going hiking in the woods. Right. We're grown adults. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Southeast New Hampshire is a hotspot for Lyme and tick-related diseases. I mean, that's fairly well recognized. I would say all of New England is. All of New England. Okay, and I didn't know that. And that's partially because um, it's humid here. It's moist here. It's not a desert. The ticks stay really well hydrated in the mulch and the forest. They can live on a leaf. They can hang. They can live on a tree. Birds carry them. Lizards, mouse, mice, squirrels, chipmunks. Everybody thinks deer, but okay. it's more than the deer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And your cats and your dogs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 right after we moved here, I saw ticks on both my cat and my and my dog, and you know, we were kind of worried about that, ha having heard about the. And it's the, the ones you can't see that are the real problem. They could be as small as a period at the end of a sentence. That's amazing. It is amazing. Can you describe for for the listeners mm -hmm. what being a patient at your practice is like? If I if I was new to your practice, mm -hmm. why might I come? And kind of what would be my experience coming? Mm -hmm. Typically, the patients who come here have heard that we help people. 
either we help people who have chronic infections or we help people who have hormonal issues or we help people who have chronic headaches or allergies or whatever. Oftentimes people will say, I've been hearing about you for 15 years and I'm finally here. Okay. <laughs> or it might be, you know, so-and-so told me, you know, this is where I need to come. But most of our patients come word of mouth. We only have a website. We don't really do other active promotions. We intend to do more, but right now we're just trying to keep up with the patient load we have. Yeah. Um, we have that waiting room out there, which is designed to be a classroom, to try to be a community education center at some point regarding chronic disease, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, how to change your your health risks in those regards, as well as with chronic tick infections. So we want to really be more of a community integrated clinic than we are currently. We're, we're just trying to keep up with what we have. And that's all going to shift in the next year or two because we have new management coming in to help us with the managing of the business. I have been, my husband and I have tried to do it, but it's beyond us now. Okay. That's <laughs> a good thing, I think. It's a good thing. Right. And uh, so we can focus more on on these endeavors and this vision for, okay. for the community. Great. So you've, you've talked about Lyme mm -hmm. and, and tick-related diseases. What other conditions do folks come to see you with, and how, how, how does your treatment differ from what they might experience if they went to an MD? I would say the first thing that patients notice is that we spend time with them. The first appointment is an hour to two hours long, depending on what's necessary. Sometimes it's even longer. Some patients are traveling from st several states away, or the longest perhaps is from Europe or from some par other part of the country. But they've come here because they think we can help them, and we want to spend the time that it takes to uncover the various patterns of disease that are in each individual so that we can identify the underlying causes of those symptoms. And so we're looking at, obviously, diet, we're looking at lifestyle, we're looking at uh, heavy metal toxicity or other kinds of toxicity. Some patients have been in welding shops for many years and have a heavy metal issue. Um, we saw one man who was eating swordfish four or five times a week and ultimately died of mercury toxicity. So those are some of the, that's that, those aren't those are the zebras in medicine. Those are the ones that you know, are out there, but we're, we're told to look at the horses, the ones that are more common. Right. And obviously in, in New England, tick-borne illness is one you have to rule out immediately. Sure. It could be chronic headaches, it could be sore throats, it could be stomach aches, it can all still be Lyme disease, even though that's what brings the patient here. I had a young man, a young boy who's 10, his issue was stomach, and then I noticed he had a sore throat and a temperature, and it's like, hmm, we should check you for Lyme disease. Oh, guess what? He has it. <laughs> Wow. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So hormonal concerns, a lot of women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s are wanting hormonal help, as are men. Yeah. Um, people who really want to age well and have a quality of life as they age come here. Others are just disabled and looking for hope, and we give it to them, not only hope, but also improved quality of life and hopefully a cure for their chronic disease. Uh, it's, it's, it's a partnership. We're here to help empower the patient and teach the patient how to take care of themselves. And so uh, what's also different is it's not a quick fix. Sometimes it is, but oftentimes it can take months or years. For the person who's had a chronic tick infection for 20 years, it's not going to be an overnight fix. It might take three to five years. Okay. But they will, they will have gradual incremental improvement. Okay. Yeah. On your site, you state, our role as naturopathic doctors is to identify underlying dysfunction within the body and mind and correct it to promote healing from the inside out. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? How, how, does that, how do you go about promoting healing from the inside out? One thing that, well, again, we're looking at those underlying causes. So let's say someone has chronic asthma. Okay. That's a common, or, or, or eczema, like I had, an atopic pattern. Usually there's some kind of a sensitivity to either a food or an environmental allergen going on, and oftentimes it's more than one thing. 
So I've seen patients with or with irritable bowel syndrome or even colitis. If you find out what's causing the colitis, then you can heal the person. You know, the typical approach is, well, we're going to give a lot of steroids and we're going to give a lot of suppressive anti-inflammatory medications to control the colitis. We want to go, why is the body making colitis? You know, there's a reason for it. And our goal is to understand that. And oftentimes, I'll tell you, it's as simple as gluten sensitivity. Okay. For some people, it's not necessarily celiac, but it's close. And um, when they stop gluten, they stop having bloody diarrhea, or they stop having to vomit every day. I mean, it's, it's really that simple sometimes. And oftentimes, these patients have been given multiple medications that they can't even keep down because they can't they can't keep anything down right. or they can't keep anything in and it's just simple as gluten sensitivity or it's a giardia infection but the patient's been told oh you're going to have colitis for the rest of your life and it's giardia, giardia. and giardia is a giardia is an infection you okay. can swim in new hampshire lakes and get giardia okay so you, would you treat that then with uh, antibiotic of some Correct. sort or? and also herbs herbs are very good at being antimicrobial antiviral okay. antimicrobial there's lots of different Okay. Yeah, mechanisms there. Okay. You, know, you mentioned herbs, and, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was what is homeopathic medicine and how does it fit into naturopathic practice? Homeopathic medicine is based on the principle that like cures like. Okay. Dr. Samuel Hahnemann in the late 1700s, I believe, it might have been 1800s, there was a malaria epidemic in Europe that was occurring. And um, he went back to the old Greek medical literature and saw this philosophy of if something creates an illness or creates symptoms that are similar in nature to the disease, then that can also heal the disease. So in his quest to really understand that, he started taking different substances and testing them on himself and doing what we call today approving in homeopathy. Okay. And approving is, okay, if I take so much of this substance, let's say I drink so much Coca-Cola, how will I feel? Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> There's actually approvings of Coca-Cola. Okay. <laughs> uh -huh. In his case, he was doing quinine, quinine oh, okay. bark. Okay. And he found that he had a lot of sweats, he had a lot of diarrhea, he had a lot of symptoms very similar to malaria. And so what he did is he started giving patients quinine bark, and today we still use quinine for malaria. It's a pretty standard treatment for it's malaria. It's very much it? a standard right. treatment. So yeah. there we have the homeopathic piece right there. But where he, he, he left and went beyond is he found that when he diluted the substance and he shook it, he essentially released the potential energy into kinetic energy of the substance. Now we're going into the realm of physics. So the underlying energy of an actual molecule. Mm -hmm. We know, for example, the hydrogen bomb can be extremely destructive. It's one tiny little atom. Right. And in the case of homeopathy, we're looking at a molecular structure that has its own energy, innate energy. And what Hahnemann discovered is when he diluted it and shook it and diluted it and shook it, he released the energy pattern more and more. So what's interesting is there may not actually be one molecule of the substance left, but the energy of that substance is magnified by doing that. Okay. And this is really hard for conventional medicine to, to follow, although sure. chromatography um, has proven that this is the case. It was shown in Nature magazine in the 1980s by a French uh, researcher, Ben Veniste, who um, it, it was proven. Okay. But then there were a lot of, <laughs> because nobody understood it, it was kind of pushed aside and said, wait, we don't want to really look okay. at that seriously. Well, there's an awful lot in medicine that we don't really understand Correct. why Correct. these things work. Correct. Right? I mean, it's, that's Correct. including stuff that's used in standard you know, medicine. medical medicine. Right. Um, but, okay. So, so I, I, I used to practice a lot more homeopathy. I was a classical homeopath, so I spent a lot of my uh, continuing education time studying various substances, plants, animal tissue, various chemical combinations, and how, when, when used homeopathically, they could heal people. And I had a lot of success, frankly, doing it. Uh, my practice for the first 20 years, I would say, was primarily homeopathy, nutrition, some herbs, and lifestyle integration. The slime epidemic pretty much changed that. People, uh, 
I was given the right to start prescribing antibiotics and I found a lot of herbs that were very useful and people didn't, it takes time to be a good homeopath, you really have to delve into the consciousness of the person, the state of the person, what is it that, that that's really pathological that they're st where they're stuck. Okay. Uh, mentally, emotionally, or sensationally, it's 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 like everybody has their own aura, so to speak, and we're trying to touch that with the homeopathic remedy and heal it from the inside out. Interesting. It's quite interesting, and it's very methodical. There's a huge art to it. I'd say some of the best homeopaths are in Europe. There's some good ones here in the North America and also India. India, you know, patient they t they'll spend days taking a case yeah. if necessary okay. to get the right remedy for a patient. Uh -huh. um, You've used the term stuck. What do, what does that mean? Stuck. Okay, I mean not um, I mean, I know what stuck means yeah. in English, but I mean, in, right. a, in, in a homeopathic sense, what does it mean to be stuck? In a homeopathic sense, it means to be um, not flowing. Okay. So that means, uh, and, and it can show up as stuck and energetically digestion with, you know, obstruction or constipation or, you know, it can just show up in different ways. But another way to think about it is if, you, if an instrument isn't in tune, Okay. It's sort of like a patient is not, or a person is not in their natural homeopathic healthy balance or, or homeostatic balance. It's like the person's out of tune. I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help them to find their natural rhythm of attunement. So, so when we tune into a radio station, 96.7 on the dial, mm -hmm. we have to have that exact wavelength to right. hit that station. Right. Similarly with homeopathy, to treat a patient, we have to find out what is that wavelength and frequency that they're vibrating on energetically and give the substance that matches that. Okay. And then that helps them to be, become healthy. And usually what we see is they become, they start to sleep better and then they start to just feel more peace. And oftentimes I'll feel people hear people say, or are used to, and even today, I feel more like myself again. That's what they say. Yeah. Like I've, I've, I'm back to being me. And does that include? I mean, does that include the full range of? You know, you've talked about nutrition and so forth as well. Is it's not just hey, let me give you this uh, herb or, or or remedy remedy, but but also uh -huh. you need to make these changes. Is that is it a is it a holistic thing, or are you saying Absolutely. homeopathy is specifically on a particular like a like a remedy? Homeopathy is the study of how particular substances, um, when diluted and potentized, this is the term okay. is potentized, okay. how they can stimulate um, health in, in people and animals and babies. I mean, it, it, a lot of people say, well, it's just placebo, but it works with animals, it works with infants, and yeah. they don't have any concept right. of placebo. <laughs> right, know? yeah, so. certainly on an animal yeah, <laughs> right. or a baby. Right, yeah, right. absolutely. So, um, it's, it's a valid art of medicine, and I do think that medicine will go more this direction in the future as we understand energy better. We're in the age of energy now. We have computers, we have cell phones, we have nuclear bombs. We're, right. we're in an age of energy, Absolutely. not turning back. But there's still also a consciousness of, of material, you know, that this is a body, but it's also an energetic being. You know, it has its, uh, we can measure a heartbeat, we can measure a pattern, we can measure electricity in the person. When that's gone, we have a body. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. And homeopathy isn't necessarily treating the body, it's treating that energy that's living in the body. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think mm -hmm. so. I mean, I, I think I'd need to do a lot more <laughs> reading on this it's before. A, I, in, but, in, in, in homeopathy, we call it the vital force, or in naturopathic medicine, we call it the... the the vis, the vital, the vital force okay. as well. Okay. It's called chi in, in, in Chinese medicine, it's called prana in Ayurvedic medicine, but it's the, the energy of the person. Is training in homeopathy standard part of naturopathic medicine? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, at least uh, one or two courses. I did every course I could because that was one was, of my interests. You really liked it. Correct. Other other NDs may choose midwifery, or they might choose oriental medicine. There's also um, those kinds of opportunities for specialties. I I did homeopathy. Okay, <laughs> I'm just just uh, curious as to how that fits into the overall. You have 
a number of therapies listed on your website. Uh, I thought maybe we could talk about a, a couple of those. Uh, one of them is intravenous nutrition therapy. What mm-hmm. is that and when do, you, when do you use it? So in my situation, let's go back to the eczema. It's kind of a, a little example, but my problem was I had nutritional deficiencies and many of our patients do. They come to see us. And so we'll do use intravenous nutrition to supply the cells with those nutrients that they're deficient in. And we'll also use the um, certain substances like glutathione. The body is, uses something called glutathione. It's a very potent antioxidant. It's very difficult to take as a supplement because it needs to be in a liposomal form. And that means that it needs to penetrate lipid membranes, not just, it's not just hydrophilic, but also lipophilic. Okay. Uh, So this is a chemical term. Hydrophilic is water and lipid is lipid, fat. Right, fat. Yeah. Yeah. And all of our cells have a bilipid membrane. pushing my biology knowledge, (laughs) but yeah, I got that one. (laughs) So every cell has a a bilipid membrane. And Uh to get inside the cell, we have to have something that can pass through that lipid membrane. Okay. and glutathione is one of those substances that we'll often use, or, or nutrients that, for example, if there's a neuropathy, uh, alpha-lipoic acid and glutathione and possibly B vitamins, phosphatidylcholine, if somebody's getting chemotherapy, then those therapies often will um, assault the nervous system or the heart, and we can give other nutrients that support the nervous system and the heart so that the side effects of the chemotherapy may not be so debilitating after the treatment or chronic. Uh, you might not have to have neuropathy in your feet after your treatment, or you might not have to have your heart functioning at 50% of what it was before treatment if you're feeding it intravenously with these nutrients. Okay. And, and we often see that that works really well. Interesting. What are cleansing and detoxification programs, and when does one use that? Well, when you think about it, we're cleanse- our bodies are made to cleanse and detoxify on a daily basis. We sweat, we urinate, we have bowel movements, we evacuate, we breathe. We're, we're, we're breaking down food particles and we're using the energy in our muscles and our cells and then we're exhaling the carbon. So our bodies are made to intake and output. And oftentimes where disease comes is when we're intaking more than the body can necessarily detoxify. And we see this in a lot of chronic disease and a lot of obesity, a lot of, you know, it's it's huge in North America. Um, People who are exposed to various chemical toxins, and I would would include pesticides here, I would include plastic bottles. I would include plastics in our food, even in our tin cans. There's plastics now. Plastics are toxic. Plastics fit in estrogen receptors. Plastics can promote cancer. It's been proven. It's not, you know, we've had some of them come off the market, but there's many others that are rushing sure. in to take their place. Right. And we live in a plastic food society. And people are microwaving in plastic, which is one of the worst things you can do, or drink after you've frozen your water in a plastic bottle. You're getting so much plastic, you have to detoxify that. So diet, exercise are really important, perhaps saunas, perhaps um, we use, maybe recommend hydrotherapy. But it's really important to get those molecules that are toxic to human beings out of the body to have optimal health. Okay, thanks. As a doctor, mm-hmm. what are your what are your greatest frustrations with mm. patients, with the healthcare system? Um, I don't have a lot of frustrations with patients. I really love being a doctor. I'm going to say that right now. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, for the most part, I uh, love being a teacher, but there are students that frustrate me. So <laughs> I get I, it. I'll, I'll have to so. say some patients push your buttons too, but for the most part, they're generally grateful to, to be getting well. <laughs> Um, the biggest, the biggest challenges I would say have been in the 26 years I've been in practice managing a business. Okay. I wasn't trained to manage a business. Right. I have a natural sense of how to keep a checkbook, and I've done really well with that. And I have a pretty good idea of how to be with people, and I, we've done pretty well. Now we're at a size where we need, we need help. Yeah. Especially if I want to continue to be a doctor, which I do, and I don't really want to be a manager for a business. Right. 
So that has been a big challenge. What was the rest of your? So the question I had, the other question I had for you was kind of, as a doctor, what are your concerns with the healthcare system? And we were just saying off offline, you know, you don't want to bash the healthcare system, but I, I think everybody pretty much knows the healthcare system deserves some bashing. We really need to make some changes to it. So, what are you, what are your frustrations with with the healthcare system? I'm going to share the frustrations that patients share with me. Okay. And one of them is the lack of time with patients. Patients feel like they get one of their symptoms or complaints perhaps addressed and then they are given a prescription, but they're not really um, fully interviewed about all of their symptoms necessarily and doctors don't, uh, a lot of doctors don't know what to do with it. The way, the way medicine has gone, it's really gone towards a pharmaceutical model and it's gone away from the basics of how to be healthy. And it's driven financially. Uh, it's not about patient care. Okay. And that's where, why we do what we do, and that's why we're very much sought after. And that's not to say that there's not good doctors and there's not excellent medicine being done. There is. But the tendency is now more towards such efficiency that the patient is lost in the, oftentimes the patient is lost in the structure or the, how shall I put it? The the model, the model of care that we have. It's it's not healthcare anymore. It's it's insurance driven, pharmaceutically driven. Yeah. You know. Sick care is what. It's I've, sick care. Yeah. yeah. Crisis, acute, critical care. Yeah. Right. I, the health literature is talking a lot about patient-centered care, and it seems mm -hmm. like. Um, and then there, I, I've read the phrases activated and empowered patients. Mm -hmm. It seems from what I've read about the ND model. Uh, is that you're kind of already there. One of the tenets of, of naturopathy is doctor as teacher. Can you talk a little bit about doctor as teacher uh, and what that means and how does that distinguish mm -hmm. the naturopath? What I will say is patients are really, uh, depending on the patient and how sick they are and how able they are to integrate the information we're willing to share, I'm willing to share any information about cardiovascular disease risk above and beyond just cholesterol, triglycerides, LDL, and HDL. We go into particle size, we go into inflammation markers, we go into genetic uh, SNPs that might be predisposing risk factors for cardiovascular disease. We even go into the types of fats in the diet and what a patient is eating that may predispose them to more cardiovascular disease or less. So my, my role as teacher is to give them that information so that they know that they can make choices at the dinner table or the breakfast, where, wherever they are. That the meal that they decide to eat can be either an inflammatory event or something that can be relatively anti-inflammatory, antioxidant uh, event. And it's not necessarily about what the taste buds would choose. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. Although eventually it might be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we start there, and then, and then we. Uh, I, I'm always interested in in the detoxification pathways of the body and how well they're working and how to enhance. So there's that. a lot of focus on that. I hear that. I'm hearing that from you. Absolutely. This de detoxification. Absolutely. And so we have to do that as patients to for ourselves, really. Correct. Right? I, I don't want to hear you be moving your bowels three times a week. And you're eating, you know, three meals a day. That's not a. That's not going to do it. You're going to be absorbing a lot of toxins, hormones, and other things you don't want to be talk, uh, absorbing in your bloodstream if things are just sitting there, and that's not okay. Uh, uh, optimal fluid intake, and what kind of fluids? Hopefully, it's not soda pop. Right. Okay. Is coffee okay? <laughs> I, I, coffee has some good things. Okay. Maybe not five a day, but... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that might be a problem for, for some people. I know. <laughs> Starbucks lovers. <laughs> You'll be, you, I have patients who really defend their, their multi, you know, triple espressos every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a coffee pot in my office. So I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, just, it I should just say... Uh, it's good. It, it has its place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A number of interviews that I've done, including hospital and health, health plan executives, have made, made it clear that the future is wellness. Mm -hmm. right? And they're approaching the issue from a population health perspective. How, how do you see naturopaths f fitting into this future? I'm not sure. Okay. Um, what we are going to be experimenting with is group visits 
Currently, we have the model where a doctor and a, and a patient are together and the pa doctor is educating the patient. But a lot of the information that we're sharing with the patient could be shared with 10 patients. You know, we're doing the same kind of general instruction or education in one room with one patient and charging for that time. Why not lower the cost and do it with 10 patients for the same hour of the doctor's time? So I could see that being expanded into the public health realm quite a lot. We're going to be doing what we call group visits in the waiting room area. We have the TV monitor there where we'll be showing PowerPoints about this is what your blood vessels look like, like after you eat this meal. This is what they might look like after you eat this meal. Okay. <laughs> Which one do you want to have? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Since I'm a management professor, I, mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you a little bit about the business. And you've, you've, you've talked a little bit about, about yeah. the business aspects of your practice. But mm -hmm. one of the things that, that I saw on your site is, is you said you're a, you're a, your practice is cash only. Correct. Uh, you don't take Medicare because Medicare doesn't pay for naturopathic services. Um, I'm assuming you don't have, maybe, maybe you do have some commercial insurers. I don't, I don't know. We do. Okay. Has, um, has naturopathy made it a lot of inroads with commercial insurers? Yes, particularly in Washington and Oregon okay. and Arizona. In New England, New Hampshire is just starting to make that inroad. I'm going to share what I think is a problem with insurance, though, in terms okay. of patient care. Um, and this doesn't necessarily... Uh, I don't want to include all patients because some patients are very dedicated to their health, but there is a group of patients who I would say want to continue having uh, the lifestyle they might want to continue and want to be fixed. And we're not necessarily the clinicians to have to be working with. We want people who want to really work to help themselves. And insurance, you know, there's not that, <laughs> how shall I, uh, that weeding out. Okay. Um, you know, you get everybody, and we we get a lot of everybody too. But it, no, it, no the, the commitment exactly no skin in the game. So if if you're paying for your visit, you're going to want to probably follow through on what we recommend. Or you're kind of wasting your money. Exactly. Yeah. It's like you really want to do this for yourself, okay. or for your child, or whoever. Yeah. Okay. What are the challenges of running without insurance as a practice? I would say the challenges are greater with insurance. Okay. Um, I, I know personally family practice providers who can no longer stay in business because they can't make a living doing it with insurance with the way insurance. it currently is. Um, one close friend said he would have to see at least 25 patients a day to break even. To break even. And then he might still have to stay after hours, four or five hours, filling out insurance documents. It's not um, a real satisfying career anymore. It used to be, but the way yeah. it's structured now, if you're in the insurance model, um, it's just a lot of paperwork. What kind of patients generally do you attract in terms of their demographics? Uh, I, I, we've talked about kind of what their illnesses are, but uh -huh. what are the demographics that you, of, of the practices you're seeing? We see infants. Okay. And we see octogenarians. So the whole range. The whole range. I'd say the majority are between 30 and 70. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So primarily an adult practice. Primarily an adult practice with plenty of children too. When parents have exhausted all other venues with their kids, they'll go anywhere. Sure. Yeah. What have been the biggest challenges you've faced as you've grown your practice? So you've been successful. I mean, you've grown from the, the, mm -hmm. you and your husband to a practice of five uh, clinicians now. Mm -hmm. You've got a beautiful new facility. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll say that since people can't can't see it, but it's a beautiful facility. You're invited anytime. <laughs> Come on by. <laughs> um, so, what? But what have been the biggest challenges that you faced as a as a as a business? As, as a, a business, uh, the biggest challenges I would say right now are that when you become a doctor, you're not trained to be a business person. Okay. And I don't. I think that's fairly universal. It's something that. Um, anybody who becomes a doctor should probably learn unless you, you intend to work for somebody else. And um, when we started, that wasn't really an option. It was, you go out and you make it yourself. <laughs> and sometimes not knowing what's ahead is the, 
the best thing, the ignorance is bliss. <laughs> it's that salmon swimming upstream, uh -huh. you don't know how far you have to go, you just got to do it. And okay. I would say that's been our course. <laughs> with, with no no licensing, no backing yeah, by yeah. banks, no, you know, all of it. And just, you know, you make it yourself. Yeah. And if you, if you really love it and you believe in it, you do it. Yeah. And you learn about what you have to do to over, you, have, you, have, you learn how to work with computers, you learn how to do electronic health records, you yeah. learn whatever is required. Oh, have you adopted an electronic health record? We're just doing that right oh, now. That's yeah. joyful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Universally hated process, but it should be beneficial in the long run once I you get used to it. I think it will be. You hope? <laughs> it's, it's just trying to find one that works with the model of naturopathic medicine. Because uh, our well, notes sure, are very, even more. Uh, you know, pages and pages of notes, especially the first visit. Yeah. It's not like... Uh, yeah. You don't work with a bunch of drop-down kind of things, maybe? No. Yeah, okay. Not really. Well, so you've been a doctor for 23 years. 26. 26, excuse mm, me. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> uh, is, is, the career, is this the career... Is, is the career what you thought it would be when you first applied to Best Year? Ooh, good question. Hmm. So you must have had some vision of, you know, exactly. I'm going to go there, I'm going to become a I'm going to become I'm going to help everybody with eczema. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you must have had some vision in your mind. And now looking back, you know, right. what? Um, let me um, tag this on. If you could go back to 1992, it was 92 when you graduated. 88. Oh, 88 when you graduated. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. That's okay. If you could go back in time to 1988 when you graduated, mm -hmm. uh, what advice would you give yourself uh, as you started on your new career? <laughs> Don't give up. Don't give up. So there'd be challenges that you you were not you're not expecting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Just don't give up. If you believe in it, and I truly believe in it, and I've seen many patients benefit from what we do. You know, continue to to do what you believe in. Mm -hmm. As a as a business or as a practitioner, uh, what what might you have done differently over the course of your career? Mm -hmm. Stayed in California? Uh, no, <laughs> no, that was for others to do. Yeah. I'm glad to be, I'm grateful to be in New Hampshire. What would I have done differently? Um, I think I would have taken more business courses and I would okay. have probably gotten an office manager sooner. Okay. <laughs> All right. What are you most proud of having accomplished at this point? Um, I think we've been a part of a greater work, a greater tapestry, starting with old-time NDs, including Dr. Bestier, and some OG Carroll and some others that were in practice in the early 1900s. We've been, we've been living their legacy and continuing the legacy. And to the degree that we've assisted in, that, in, in New Hampshire, now there's over 100 NDs licensed in New Hampshire, not all work practice here. But to the degree that we've assisted with that legacy here, I'm proud and glad and privileged to be a part of it. That's pretty good. If there was one thing you could correct about the public's understanding of naturopathic medicine, what would it be? One is that, like any doctor, we're not all the same. And um, we each have our specific expertises and our specific skill set. And to investigate personally what the truth of healing means for you and how can naturopathic medicine perhaps assist you in that goal. For younger listeners who might be intrigued after having listened to your interview, uh, what advice would you give them about pursuing a career as a naturopathic doctor? Where could they go to get more information and what kind of training should they be thinking about? Definitely do a pre-medical undergrad program. Look at all of the naturopathic schools in North America, including Canada, if you're Canadian. Be thinking about your inner perseverance in terms of, of really doing what you believe in and being fulfilled by a career that is really a, a tremendous public service, but you also have to make a living and you have to pay for your education. It's a lot. And uh, you don't often get a lot of help. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've, I've learned a lot about the, the field. Great, thank you.
I appreciate being able to share it. Hello. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I always allow my guests the opportunity to review their interviews before I release them to the public. After reviewing the podcast, Dr. Fassler asked me to add two things to this recording. First, she would have liked to have shared with students interested in the naturopathic profession the following statement. This is an endlessly interesting and dynamic profession leading the way in the prevention and reversal of disease with nutrition and lifestyle therapies and the use of naturally derived medicines. There are numerous naturopathic doctor career paths, including clinical practice with many specialties, being a professor, consulting for nutraceutical companies, and research. If you choose to become a naturopathic physician, welcome to the family. Second, she wanted me to correct her statement during the podcast about the number of states that license naturopathic physicians. During the interview, she said it was 11 to 14, but 17 states, in fact, currently license naturopathic physicians. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.